Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I was honored to interview Tony Blair, former Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and Executive Chairman of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Tony Blair was the longest-serving Labour Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, serving as Prime Minister from 1997 to 2007, and he was the leader of the Labour Party from 1994 to 2007. I was able to interact with Tony during my years at the White House, and I always found talking to him that even if we disagreed on certain topics, it was never an argument, it was always a discussion. I felt like I was learning, and I felt like he was listening. Take a listen to this podcast. I think you'll really enjoy it. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So I'm super delighted to be here this morning with former Prime Minister Tony Blair. Tony, one of the things that always struck me about you, even when we were dealing with um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which you were so helpful in giving me advice, is you seem to be one of the few former world leaders, even world leaders today, who can talk about tough issues without uh, without going you know too far in one direction? You have a pragmatic view, a rational view. You can understand other views. You can respond um, not only politely because as Brits you do that all the time, but just from a like a really um, just a way that people accept what you have to say and try to absorb it. And you were really very helpful to me in the White House when you offered to give us advice on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I thank you. I thank you for being here. I think my listeners will learn a lot from you. Well, thanks, Jason. And and let me repay the compliment because I enjoyed immensely working with you and with uh, Jared and with all of the, the the team on on what is you know one of the most difficult issues in the world. And you know I I've come to my own approach in in politics really through experience, through realizing that um, situations are often much more complicated than they appear to be, uh, that you should always try and see both sides of an argument. And particularly, I think, in a world in which you know, some of the, the basic value systems that we hold dear are under threat, I think it's important that people try and reach across political divides, try and see where they can come together and, and, and meet together, and where even if you disagree with someone, you don't disrespect them or denounce them. And I think this is a you know, I've I've learned over time this is a more productive way to in, engage in politics, and it's certainly the way I feel more comfortable engaging with it. And you know, throughout a a long period of time, both in government and then after government, I also have come to think of a lot of the world's problems as really less ideological and more practical. Where, provided you you're realistic about what the problem is and realistic about the solutions, then you're much more likely to come to the right answer um, than you are if you start from very fixed um, ideological and can often be prejudicial positions. So 
I want to start with the Tony Blair Institute, which recently published a report outlining how the global open Internet is under threat because of the restrictions on Internet freedoms, other challenges as well. Can you talk about some of these challenges and can they realistically be addressed? Addressing them is pretty tough, actually, but the, the challenges come in, in two forms. Um, first of all, these companies are immensely powerful today. In some ways, they're much more powerful, much wealthier. Their reach is much greater than your average state. And it's important to have rules around you know, the protection of free speech, um, whilst also making sure that you don't let people spread the hate. Um, how you ward off what is an increasing tendency in some countries to, to shut down the internet in order to control the, the views of their population. You find this in a lot of dictatorial or autocratic states. And then, you know, you, you've got a world in which China is going to develop a quite different concept of the internet and of internet freedom and indeed of the whole technology revolution. And so one of the things we're, we're talking about is why it's necessary for countries that are democracies to try and come together and see if you can hammer out some common rules and some common principles. But I think the other thing that motivates the work of my institute is just to say this technology revolution is going to change literally everything about the way the world works, how we live, how we work, how we interact with each other. And, you know, mastering that, harnessing it for the public good is, is a big, big challenge for policymakers, because most policymakers, I mean, I'm, I'm older than you, but even your generation, you know, the truth is, the world we grew up in is nothing like the world our kids are growing up in, uh, and my grandchildren now. Um, and so the risk is you get the policymakers in one room and the change makers in another, and they don't meet when it's really important they do, because a lot of the problems of the world will come out of this technology, but also a lot of the solutions. But if you want to harness the best of it and deal with the worst, mitigate the worst of it, you've got to understand it. And, and actually understanding it is, is one of the biggest challenges policymakers have. So along those lines, you know, you've said the Internet is the beating heart of the world. It's the circulatory system on which much of modern life depends. You point out, of course, that without the Internet, the ramifications of COVID-19, and we're coming on almost two years now, would have been far more severe. So you want to work on closing that digital divide. And uh, that seems to be more and more challenging. You want to close it, I think, by 2030. Is it possible? And if so, how do you recommend we achieve this? So in the report we published, we set out a plan for doing it. The reason it's important is that roughly 3.7 billion people, is virtually half of the population of the planet, don't have access to the internet. And because if you, if you just think how much difference it makes to our daily lives to be without that, can you imagine getting through COVID without it? It would be um, virtually impossible, I think. So it's, it's extraordinarily important that we bridge this divide. And again, technology could potentially offer solutions. So some of the satellite technology, I mean, I'm thinking of things like Starlink, for example, that Elon Musk has developed. I mean, these are of enormous potential importance to linking up the poorest parts of the world. And, you know, once once you get access to the internet, for all the, you know, often we in our countries, we're thinking of, you know, our kids spend too much time on it. It's uh, there's all the problems that come out of it. And all of that is true. And we need to, 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 to work on all of those problems. But for example, it allows you to, to bring healthcare from 
an urban center to a remote village in Africa. It allows those children in a school to get basic education, which they're often not able to get in the traditional school setting um, and where you don't have enough qualified teachers. You know, it, it, it also can enable enormous amounts of economic development. So bridging that divide is really important. It's not impossible to do. Um, and the technology is exists now, but will develop enormously over the next few years. So we, we again set out some practical ways the world could come together in order to do that. And of course, that will enormously boost the economic demand in the world. So it will also do good for our own economies. And you, and you mentioned um, education. You're a big proponent of trying to give a world-class education to every child. And you mentioned incremental change is, uh, is just not enough anymore. And we should harness technology in order to achieve those goals. So aside from the obvious, you know, talking on Zoom, teaching on Zoom perhaps, what are some of the other ways technology could help close the gap in education so every child can be properly educated around the world? So part of the problem with education is if you take – the, the Western system of education. I mean, I don't know what it's like in America, but I think it's, well, I've got a reasonable idea, actually. I think it's pretty much the same as the UK. So we educate a group at the top, top 10%, 20%. We educate them very well. We educate the next 30 40%, maybe on a good day, 50% reasonably well. And then there's a tail of the bottom, a lot of them in inner city schools, um, that are getting very poor education indeed. So one issue quite apart from technology is education reform, and I'm a big proponent of it. We developed a whole set of um, education reforms when I was in government, uh, which really did change the education picture in London significantly. Some of it mirrored some of the stuff that's in your charter school provisions um, in, in, in the US. But, you know, we, we we did it literally by starting, we started with one school, which is the worst school in um, one of the most difficult parts of, of London, and then just built out from there to what is now um, the dominant provision within our education system. And I raise that because you can do everything on technology you want, but if your school system doesn't have the freedom and the stimulus to innovate and to make changes, and really to put the interests of the children first. You know, I'm a, I'm a pupil and patient first person when it comes to schooling and healthcare. But if you don't have a system that allows and stimulates and incentivizes that innovation, then you're never, it doesn't matter what technology you've got, it's never going to work. But then when you come to technology, and particularly when you look at the developing world, and my institute works all over Africa, we work in the Middle East, we work now in Southeast Asia, in Eastern Europe, you know, for some of these developing countries, they don't have our legacy systems. And so what I'm saying to, to those leaders is don't recreate our school system because actually we're having to try and reform it now. <clears throat> Instead, think what technology can do. Technology allows you if, you, if you've got access to the internet, to bring the best teaching in the world right into your classroom. It should uh, enable you to teach different children, different subjects at different speeds, because I've always thought it's very obvious children have different capabilities and different subjects, different talents. Um, very few people are talented at everything. You know, some of the best maths tuition you will get, which people are, are using in places like India now, 
it is is from programs created by people on the internet which you can access and 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 use teaching basic literacy can often e- much more easily be done um through the use of of, of technology so i i'm i think it's it's about the structure and system that you have but also if you can get a fantastic lecture on a subject in history from the best person in the world there's no reason why they shouldn't be there in front of you in the classroom and i think one of the things that should come out of the this technology revolution is is quite a fundamental reform to the teaching profession how we train teachers what sort of skills we have in the classroom you know all of these things i think need to change and that's why you need a system and a structure that incentivizes that change and and too often part of the problem with trying to reform your education system is that it ends up being more about the people running it than the people supposed to benefit from it it almost seems like we're on the cusp of a revolution in education that we've never seen before and and perhaps covid in a way um pushed us in that direction many many times faster than one would have expected yeah i think that's absolutely right and and the thing is to to work out what the possibilities are and then you know utilize them most effectively by the way i think it will also covid whatever the harm and we know that's been huge it has also accelerated bioscience and the development potentially of new cures for some of the you know the worst conditions and diseases um probably it's probably we've had 10 years of advance squeezed into 18 months so that's also potentially a big thing for the future so let's talk about covid you've said and others have said that the world was just completely unprepared for covid uh we need to learn lessons from what happened what are some of those lessons and can we push politics and other agendas aside in order to actually take those lessons and do something so that the next time this happens we're ready yeah i think you know like like a, like a lot of people <laughs> there's a whole set of terminologies and things about disease and pathogens that you know i if you'd asked me 3 or 4 years ago i wouldn't have known what you were talking about and, and now you've become kind of familiar with all these terms but as far as i can make out my institute does a lot of work now on covid because we work with governments we pivoted to covid response as part of the work we do and i talked to a range of different experts around the world including of course in the in the us and the uk so here's the following that i think is pretty clear one we ha- actually had a lot of near 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 misses in the last few years until covid finally came secondly <clears throat> partly because of the changing biodiversity and population movements in the planet we're likely to have more of these in the years to come and so thirdly we need to put in place an infrastructure that allows us to respond much more quickly so <clears throat> that means things like being prepared for example on genomic sequencing to do large amounts of genomic sequencing there's very interesting new technology some of which is developed in the UK that allows us to do genomic sequencing at scale but that that can tell you the moment a new pathogen arises how you might deal with it the composition of it but much of the world doesn't really do uh, genomic sequencing at all or not in the way it should <clears throat> and then you've got how you manage i think if we were doing this again probably we would get together the main vaccine manufacturers in the world and say well how do we repurpose enough capacity to produce the vaccine at scale at a greater speed you know the the pharmaceutical companies 
in some ways did an incredible job in developing the vaccines as fast as they did. And, and actually your US Operation Warp Speed was, I think, <clears throat> was actually an enormously successful program. So people, I think, probably reckon now we could do that much faster if we really had to. And then I think for a lot of countries, particularly ones I'm working in, they will want some capacity to do some of the production of the equipment necessary to deal with any future pandemic in their own country. So that will also mean a shift in the way that they they organize their healthcare system and their production. And and we're seeing in some of these poorly vaccinated countries that uh, you know it spreads and then it spreads beyond its borders. <clears throat> some countries issue lockdowns which don't seem to be effective other than perhaps on a temporary basis. Do you think that the countries can, is there a solution for countries to sort of get together and figure out how to avoid these pocket lockdowns that are temporary? Or are we sort of stuck with this COVID thing for quite some time now that, you know, for the, for the foreseeable future? Yeah, it's a very good question. And if I, I could be sure of the answer, I'd be very grateful. But so we, we, we've got Omicron is raging in the UK now, just anecdotally. I mean, I can show you the data, but just, anecdotally from my own personal experience, I think it's much, 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 much more transmissible than uh, the Delta variant. So, and I am, a, I'm, I've always been a skeptic in locking down borders because for a start, the reason you often know that a particular variant is in a country is because they're doing genomic sequencing. For example, everyone thinks that Omicron originated in South Africa. No, in South Africa, they happened to do, for various historical reasons, high levels of genomic sequencing. It almost certainly didn't originate there. It originated probably in a neighboring country. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily, the fact that you've identified a strain in a country doesn't really mean that it's in that country, but not in others. I don't think there's any way the world avoids this Omicron variant. And so I'm much more in favor of trying to build resilience against the, 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 the virus, trying to make sure that we have all the things in place around vaccination testing and so on, so that you're able to lead as normal a life as possible. Because I think the, you know, the devastating effects of lockdown, not just on the economy, but on the mental well-being of, of people and on other diseases. I mean, I don't know what the situation is like in the U.S., but in the UK, I think we will find at the end of this crisis that the health consequences of people not being treated because all the emphasis was on COVID for understandable reasons, but nonetheless, the fact's a fact. I, I think we'll find those health consequences will be, it, it could be as severe as COVID itself. So I think and, you know, if you if you lock down countries from each other, you know, international travel stores, I think there are all sorts of problems that are going to arise from that. So my my view is, by the way, that countries that have tried to go through this by shutting down completely, I've always been skeptical. And I think, you know, frankly, if you're China at the moment and you've had your country under really severe lockdown from the outside world, I mean, a lot of freedom inside China, but, you know, you've got probably very limited amounts of natural immunity because you won't have had much of the virus circulating in the country. And 
can anyone really keep Omicron out? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. So, um, so I, no, I, I think, I think we're going to be living with COVID for some years, but we've got to, we just got to learn to live with it in a way that, you know, it has the right risk calculus at the heart of it. So that, yes, you're dealing with COVID, but you're not ignoring all these other dimensions because they're also important. So last COVID question stapled to a little bit of politics. I know you were against Brexit, um, and I know there are many, many layers to Brexit. Uh, So this is a very thin question relating to Brexit. In light of what happened with COVID and Europe in particular, or the EU in particular, do you think Brexit actually might have helped the UK in the sense that the UK got to make its own decisions about COVID and and I know you're you're saying you know general lockdowns aren't necessarily good, but at least each country can make its decision about how they want to lock down and what their rules are. Or do you think that's just too uh, too small uh, a notion when it comes to Brexit? I won't I won't go back over all the Brexit debates, <clears throat> Jason, since it would be tedious even for me. Never mind <laughs> for your for your listeners, but. The truth is, actually, European countries really have taken their own decisions on COVID. So the only thing Europe decided to pool, which they could have done differently and should have done differently, was vaccine acquisition. And that did give the UK an advantage in the initial stages of this, because to be fair to our government here, they, they did a good job on, on, on vaccine acquisition. <clears throat> and But, you know, Europe's now caught up with that, and that's in the past. Most of the countries... You know, Germany's got different rules from France. France's got different rules from Italy and so on. It's really hard when something like COVID happens. I mean, every country looks after their own people. I think what is more important for Europe to think about is how does it develop its own bioscience capacities for the future? And there, of course, the UK is probably... You know, probably in terms of technology more generally, and certainly in terms of bioscience, we're probably the best in Europe. But, you know, I, it would also be sensible for us, even outside of Europe, to cooperate with other European countries just for purposes of scale. And that, I think, is, is still, you know, is still probably the right re- response. But when something like COVID happens, every government's supposed to look after its own people. And frankly, you know, even an alliance as strong as Europe takes second place to that. Do you think there are other countries who are on the fence about leaving the EU? No, I don't. I don't think so, really. I mean, ever since Britain's been in the well, actually before when the European Union first started back in in as the iron and iron, steel, and coal community or whatever it was called back in the early days in the fifties, there were people in Britain who thought the thing would never last, and people have been thinking it would never last for the next seventy years, but it has. And the reason for it is, in the end, very simple: because leave aside all the problems with Europe, and there are problems with the way Europe has constructed itself. In particular, the biggest problem for Europe is that it was created in the aftermath of the Second World War. And it was created in circumstances where the the belief, strong belief for perfectly understandable reasons. I remember having these discussions with Helmut Kohl, um, you know, the Chancellor of of Germany for a long time in the 80s and 90s, the belief was the nation state was to blame. So because the overmighty German nation state had been the cause of this problem. And so part of the difficulty with Europe was that it was created 
with a sense that the more you reduced the power of the nation state, the better off we would all be. And therefore, the difficulty is that as time progressed and the Second World War, thankfully, has receded into the distance, and, you know, Germany has, of course, become a completely different type of country with a different culture and so on and so forth, then the nation state has been something people in a world of globalization, they quite like to feel themselves part of their own nation and own country. And that has always caused a tension with Europe all the way through. And that has been a, a problem in, I think, a lot of the construction of Europe. However, having said all of that, the thing that holds Europe together is, you know, you look at the world today, you've got America, giant, China, giant. Where are the other giants? Right. Maybe India in time if it sorts itself out. <laughs> you know, the Indians are incredibly capable people. The population size, yep, they might be a giant by the middle of the century too. But these three countries are going to be just by a factor of three or four bigger than any other country. So then you'll have the, the poor countries, which will be Indonesia and Brazil and, you know, countries with populations well in excess of 100 million, 200 million, so on. But for a country like the size of the UK, 65, 70 million, Germany, 85, France, 65. If we're not coming together, you know, I love America, but I'm also a realist. <laughs> You've got a giant in the same room as a middle-sized person. The giant calls the shots, right? <laughs> so it's just as simple as that. And, and that's why I think whatever the forces pulling Europe apart, and there are some, that is the thing that pulls it back together again. And that's why I, I, I may be wrong, but I doubt anyone else will leave. And I, I do believe that eventually Britain will have to come. Not, I don't, I'm not saying we'll rejoin the European Union, but we'll have to come to a, a, a good, strong relationship with Europe. And you mentioned the sort of the two giants, right? The U.S. and China. Where do you see the U.S.-Chinese relationship going? And if you were with President Biden now, what would be your advice to him in light of what's happened over the last number of years with China? My view is strength and engagement. So I think when I was in power, we thought that as China evolved economically, it would evolve politically, and it would evolve politically in a, a way from the old communist system towards something, not, not a Western democracy, but something that had, had attributes that we might recognize as the nascent shoots of, of, of such a system. And I'm afraid over the last few years that that has proved to be a misplaced uh, hope. Instead, what has happened is China has become internally much more gripped by the Communist Party and externally, frankly, more aggressive in the assertion of its interests. On the other hand, China's a fact, and it's a very big fact, and its strength is a fact, and so is its, its power. And what's more, it's a fact that's natural. The size of the Chinese economy, its technology, its population, they are going to be a world power. The hope is that at some point we manage to find a good modus vivendi with them. But my point is you can't afford to be weak. You've got to be strong and strong enough to deal with anything that may happen in respect to China. But you can't afford either not to engage with it because the problems that we're trying to deal with in the world will require Chinese engagement. This is what's tricky about it. And therefore, my 
motto in dealing with China is maximum strength combined with sustained engagement, because I don't see any other way of dealing with it. I think if you try and isolate China completely, it doesn't work. Um, but we have to be strong. And one of the most important things right now is that people see the Western world recovering its confidence, confidence in its own value system, uh, confidence that its economic and political model is basically the one that a free world aspires to and being prepared to stand up for itself. You and I share a passion for the Middle East. Um, and I think we would probably both agree that it is uh, heading in quite an incredible direction, something perhaps we wouldn't have seen uh, even as recent as 2017. What are your thoughts today on the Middle East, the Abraham Accords, and uh, in particular, Iran? So on the Abraham Accords, I think this was a huge um, step forward. I mean, for many, many years, I believe that the key to the Middle East is um, building a relationship between Israel and, and the Arab nations. And I think that because, you know, when I, I, I've dealt with the Middle East for a long time now, in government, out of government, um, in different guises and varieties of position. In my view, what is happening in the Middle East, it, it's all about two things. It, it's really a struggle to see if the countries of the Middle East can acquire tolerant societies and rule-based economies. By tolerant societies, I mean societies in which people are open to people of different faith and culture and economies where if you work hard and play by the rules, you can create business, build business, do well, look after your family and so on. And, you know, what stands in the way of that are old style corrupt regimes and new style Islamist extremism. So. The coming together of Israel and Arab nations and the Abraham Accords was important because what it signaled was not just peace between Israel, UAE, Bahrain, but it signaled a different type of peace. The peace that Israel traditionally had with Jordan and Egypt was the peace, meaning the absence of war. The peace that the Abraham Accords signified, which is much, much, much more important in my view, was a warm peace, was actually the presence of cultural understanding, right? So that is why I think it's really important because it, if you believe that the future is tolerant societies and rule-based economies, this is a major strike in that direction. And I hope very much it, it, it will be built on. I think it's already having massive repercussions around the Middle East of a positive nature. Um, and in the end, I think it's also, by the way, the, the clue and key to the Palestinian conflict. So let's talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You brought about the historic Good Friday Agreement, the 1998 peace accord after the troubles in Northern Ireland. Are there lessons learned from that historic agreement that you spearheaded that could be brought to bear in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or are they very different? Well, I mean, they obviously are very different, but there, there are some similarities. I think the most important one, though, is You've got to, you, you've got to have a situation where both sides have the leadership that's really capable of thinking differently about the situation. You see, in Northern Ireland, the reason we were able to make peace was in the end, the Republicans who wanted 
a united Ireland. And the unionists who wanted a united kingdom, right, and a divided Ireland, they were able to come to an agreement that basically said, look, the people in Northern Ireland, they've got to be treated equally. The old prejudice against Catholics and so on, and 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 have <clears throat> got to go. The nationalist inspiration uh, aspirations have got to be recognised. But if that's done, then we'll leave the border in place, but we'll keep it open. Close relationship between the Republic of Ireland and and the UK, and so on. And and so, in a way, what people people agreed that even though we couldn't resolve the final issue, we would live in peace with each other. And then over time, let's see what happens. I mean, essentially, that was what it was. But that took very imaginative leadership. It, it took Republicans who were prepared to say, OK, we've been fighting you for the last 30, 40 years and arguably several hundred years, but we're actually going to put all that aside and with this framework move forward. And that that is that is a lesson, uh, but you know, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I I mean, my own view is that you won't get a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict until there's pretty fundamental change. I think Palestinian politics has to undergo its own, you know, huge change. Really, it it, it can't carry on as it is. And then it requires Israel to have sufficient confidence in in that change that that it's prepared, you know, to put its to put its rest its security on the shoulders of that of whatever agreement can be made, and that's a very tough thing. But that's where the region's important because I think it's a lot easier for the Israelis. And you know, I know Israel very well. I've been there over two hundred and fifty times since leaving office, so I, you know. I'm, well familiar with it. I'm very, very uh, fond of it as, as the country. But I understand now the mentality in a way I didn't really when I used to visit just as prime minister every so often. And for the Israelis, they've been through so much. They, Unless they know that the region as a whole is underpinning that whatever agreement they can come to with the changed Palestinian politics, then it's really tough. So I'm not pessimistic, actually, because I think the changes in the region will happen. But I think you, to be realistic, it does need both of those things to make it happen. What made you start the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change? And what are, what's a recent achievement that you're very proud of? What made me start it was really, you know, well, I did 10 years in government. It's an extraordinary thing about governing a country. You know, in a democracy, you elect your leadership. It's the only job in the world, if you think about it, a job of real importance. That it doesn't matter whether anyone's got any experience or whatever. You know, it's just, you know, you, you're put in there if you win the election. I mean, I always say to people, you know, because I'm a big football fan or soccer, as you guys know over there. I mean, Manchester United. You know, it would never dream of choosing its next coach by saying, hey, we want the most enthusiastic fan. Whoever it is, step forward. You can run the team. <laughs> People would say, we've lost your mind. But that's what happens in politics. So when I came into Downing Street in 1997, that was the first job I'd ever had in politics. First real job. I mean, I've been 
in politics, but I mean governing. Right? And to be very honest, the first part of my time in government was just learning. And, you know, in my second term, I made big changes in the centre of government based on my experience in the first, because I, then, I realised then that the toughest thing about government is actually getting anything done. It's not all the things that people think about. And by the way, what carries you to victory in an election to win power is a completely different skill set from the skill set you need when you're actually there. You know, when you're in opposition, what you say matters. When you're in government, it's actually what you do that matters. And in the end, doing is a lot harder than saying, as we know. It's the same with politics as in life. So I decided after I left office, I would carry those lessons forward. And therefore, I, I've created an institute now. We've expanded a, a, a lot now. We're in roughly about 30 different countries where we work with governments on creating change. And, what, and I help government leaders as to how they prioritize, how they develop the right policy, are they bringing the best ideas from outside, are they get the right personnel in place, and then how you just performance manage your, your way through it. I mean, being a leader of a, a country today, it, it's, it's honestly, in, in, in its day-to-day -day running, it's got more in common being a CEO than it has being a traditional political leader. You know, people always wince when you say that, but it, it's really true. And so that's what I try and do. What are we most proud of? Well, we're most proud of the things that, you know, I go to a country like Rwanda and we've been working there for well over a decade. And I see a country that 25 years ago was in genocide. And today is, you know, really knocking on the door of second world status and, and doing well as a country. And, you know, that is primarily as a result of its leadership and its people. But we have played a part in it and I'm proud of that. Tony, thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom your experience, your insight. Um, this is really helpful. I think my listeners will learn a lot from the show. Really appreciate the time. Jason, thanks very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Great to see you. Take care. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. It was great to interview the former Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Tony Blair. We discussed the global open internet Closing the Digital Divide, world-class education, certainly a lot of COVID, the Good Friday Agreement, and so much more. Really a fascinating discussion that I hope you learned from. We've had a great roster of guests in the past and plenty to look forward to in the new year. There are lots of topics we hope to discuss on The Diplomat, and we want to hear from you. On Tuesday, December 21st, a poll will be going live on Newsweek's Instagram about the diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics. Is it a good idea? Should athletes be boycotting as well? Vote in the poll and leave a comment. We'll be discussing the results on an upcoming episode of The Diplomat. If you found this podcast informative, please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends and family and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever your podcasts can be heard. Remember, we've had a great roster of guests so far. If you've missed any of the episodes, do scroll back and listen to them. We have some great guests coming up as well. Do follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. And my book that is coming out in June is now available for pre-order on Amazon. I encourage you to pre-order it now. The book's title is In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. 
Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.